Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. Good morning, everyone. We're currently in a series called Strength in Weakness, which is our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Corinthians. It's how we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields, studying verse-by-verse through books of the Bible. So please open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and we'll pick up where we left off last week in chapter 5. Would you please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us in hope. Lord, build our faith and do a transforming work in us. We pray that your word would have its full effect in our lives, that we would understand it, and Lord, that by your grace we would be transformed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was March of 2012. And my wife and I, my family, we were moving. Now, we had moved before, but this time it was different because this time we were moving halfway across the world. You know, even though Rosemary and I had grown up in America, we'd both spent our entire adult lives living in Hungary. We had met there. We had, uh, our kids were born there. We had established our home there. But now we were packing up our home and we were trying to decide, you know, what to bring with us to America in order to establish a new home over here. And you know how it is when you're moving, right? There are certain items that we felt that we wanted to hold on to because those items would make us feel at home. You know, it's it's interesting. Throughout your life, there will likely be many places that you will know or you will have as your home. Even those who love to travel will tell you that there's no place like home, right? But what is it exactly that makes a house or an apartment or any place that you live, what is it that makes it your home in that sense? Like I said, for many of us, uh, for most of us, over the course of your life, you'll probably live in several places that you will call your home. The home that you grew up in at some point will cease to be your home. You can also move halfway across the world and establish a new home. So what is exactly that makes a place your home? Some have suggested different things. Some have said that home is about belonging, right? Home is the place where you feel that you belong. Others have said home is about refuge and security. So it's the place where you can let your guard down and truly be yourself. Another person has said, no, it's not that complicated. It's much more simple. Home is just the place where when you walk in, your Wi-Fi connects automatically. As human beings, uh, we have this innate longing for home, don't we, right? It's kind of built into us, this desire for home, so much so that even those who love to travel have experienced what's called homesickness, this visceral desire, this longing that makes you feel like you're, you're hurting and wanting to go home. I remember being with my kids one time at Disneyland, and so there we were at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, or as I like to call it, the most expensive place on earth. And, and one of my kids was looking a little sad, and I asked her, what's, what's wrong? Why are you sad? And she said, I just miss home. You know, there we were at Disneyland, of all places, and she's feeling homesick and wanting to go home. That's how strong within us this desire for home can be. And there's an interesting phenomenon that I came across, which is that uh, many people report having a sense of homesickness but for a place where they've never been before ever in their life, right? So in German, they actually have a word for this. They call it Fernweh. 
And Fernweh means, literally means um, far sickness as opposed to homesickness. And what it is, it is a homesickness for a place you've never been before in your life. It's this desire, this ache to go somewhere, and yet you've never even been there. C.S. Lewis described this feeling of being homesick for a place you've never been. He said, actually, this feeling is central to what it means to be a human. It's central to the human existence. There is this kind of restlessness inside of all of us that drives us. We're searching and, and looking for something, even if we're not sure what it is or where to find it, right? This is what you two and Bono were talking about when they said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We have this itch that can't be scratched by anything in this world. And so C.S. Lewis, he concludes, he says this, if I find within myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The philosopher Blaise Pascal, he explained it like this. He said, there's something nostalgic and reminiscent inside of us, as if we have this lingering ancestral memory that longs to get back to the place from which we came. And he said that's because we, we were created by God, and we were created for perfection. And so we have this deep, instinctual desire to get back to the place for which we were created. And that's why, like my daughter at Disneyland, there will always be part of us that wants to go home, and yet that home that we long for is actually a place we've never been before. And, and that, we, we, that feeling we have, that longing that's inside of us, God tells us in the Bible that that longing is actually a longing for heaven. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text today talks about this very thing. The longing we have for heaven and what will happen when we die and what awaits us on the other side. Here in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle has been talking to us very candidly about the topic of suffering, the sufferings that we will endure and experience in our lives here on earth. Paul himself was a person who was very much acquainted with suffering. He suffered a lot in his life. And what's so interesting about Paul is that actually his suffering began when he became a Christian. Prior to becoming a Christian, Paul actually didn't suffer very much in his life at all. And that's really interesting to think about because I think many people assume that if you're living in a way that is pleasing to God, you're doing things that God likes and doing, living your life the way God desires, then your life should be getting better, not worse. But what Paul is telling us here in this letter is that the hope of the gospel the hope that we have in Jesus is not that if you follow Jesus, you will never face difficulties or hurts or experience disappointments in your life. Rather, the hope of the gospel, the hope we have in Jesus, is a hope that is much greater than that. It's one that goes beyond this life. And here in chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about heaven. He's going to talk about how this hope that we have of heaven in the gospel it changes the way we live here and now. And he's going to show us how that is in this section. So the title of today's message is How the Hope of Heaven Makes Us Resilient. How the Hope of Heaven Makes Us Resilient. And here's what we're going to see in our passage today. Every week I give you a, a sentence I'd love for you to write down and follow along with. Uh, it'll be our outline for studying the passage. Here's what it is today. The hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials 
and direction in how to spend the days of our lives. I'll give it to you one more time. The hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials and direction in how to spend the days of our lives. So let's break that down as we study this passage today. So the first part of that, the hope of heaven. Look at what it says in verse 1 there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Every summer, my wife and I, we like to take our kids camping. But something I've noticed living here in Colorado is that the word camping is used pretty liberally, and it's used to mean vastly different things by different people. So for example, my neighbors, they love to go camping. They go camping all the time, but they have like a 40-foot RV with air conditioning and a shower and like a, a satellite dish, right? So they go camping, and that just means they like pull into a parking spot, put out their awning, watch TV in air conditioning. is basically just an extension of their house. Now, when we go camping, it's a little bit different, right? Like for us, camping isn't necessarily something that you enjoy. It's more like something that you endure, and it builds character, right? Like, like for us, like camping, it involves suffering and hunger, right? Like for us, it, it involves tents and that rock that pokes you in the back, all night long, right? Like as you're on the ground. And, and it's that feeling that you, maybe you've had it, where you're freezing all night. So you sleep for like two hours. But then as soon as the sun comes out, it's unbearably hot within your tent. That's what camping is about, in my opinion. And apparently Paul's too, right? Because he talks about tents. And tent, a tent is a temporary shelter that you use while you're on a journey. It's not designed to be something that you live in forever. And so when Paul says that our physical bodies are like tents, he's highlighting the contrast between our earthly bodies and the eternal home that awaits us in heaven. Notice what it says there at the beginning of verse 1. He says, for we know. In other words, the things Paul is talking about here in regard to the eternal state and the heavenly hope, the world beyond, these are not mere speculations, this isn't just wishful thinking, pie in the sky. It isn't just like Paul's guesses about what might happen when we die. No, he says, these are things that we can know. We can be sure about these things because they're outlined clearly in God's word. What Paul tells us is that these bodies we currently live in, our flesh and blood bodies, these are temporary dwellings, which we use while we live on this earth as sojourners. What that means is this. You are more than just your body. Do you know that? You are more than just your body. And that means this. When you die, meaning when your physical body dies, you will go on existing. The end of your body is not the end of you. The word destroyed there in verse 1, it, when it talks about the tent that is our bodies being destroyed, that's actually the same Greek word that is used for when you would break a tent down at the end of a camping trip, for example. You, you take down the tent. You pull the stakes. You fold it up. For Greek people at this time, see, they didn't really go camping in the same way that we go camping, like for recreation. For Greek people at this time, the, the main reason why you would ever live in a tent was because you were waiting for your permanent house to be built. So let's say you own some property, or you, you moved to town, you bought some property, you were going to build a house on it. While you were building the house, you would set up a tent, and you and your family would live in that tent while your house was being built. So Paul's saying, that is what our lives here on earth are like right now. 
We're like people living in tents as we wait for our permanent dwelling, our permanent home to be built. And he says, the hope that awaits us is a building from God, a house in the heavens, a home not made by human hands, but rather one that is eternal in the heavens. Now that phrase, not made with human hands, that's a really interesting one. It's the kind of phrase that should trigger memories in your mind of other verses you've read in the Bible. See, as you hear that phrase, not built with human hands, it reminds us that multiple times in the Bible we are told that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands, but rather God dwells in heaven, which is described as a temple not made by human hands. So in other words, for those who trust in Jesus, when these earthly bodies of ours are destroyed, we will go to dwell with God in heaven. And understand this, that is what makes heaven heavenly. What makes heaven heavenly is not mansions and pearly gates and streets of gold. What makes heaven heavenly is that God is there. It's the presence of God that makes heaven heavenly. You see, the hope of heaven is the true hope of all those who have ever lived. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we are told that those who came before us, people of faith that we read about in the Bible, like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of them were seeking after something which they never found here on earth. It tells us that what they were looking for was actually a homeland, a homeland. But then it tells us this, that the homeland they were looking for was not a geographical piece of land where they could plant their flag and call their own. The homeland they were seeking after was actually heaven. What they were seeking ultimately was a city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, a home eternal in the heavens made not by human hands. This is what Jesus described in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, when we read that at the Last Supper, Jesus announced to his disciples that the time for his departure had come, that he was going away. Now, on the one hand, Jesus was talking about his death, but much, much more importantly, Jesus was talking about his ascension into heaven. And Jesus told his disciples there, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will go and prepare a place for you. And then I will come again to you to take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Again, the picture it gives us about our lives is that we are like people living in temporary dwellings, living in tents here on earth where we wait for our permanent home to be built. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are worried about the future. Maybe you are too, right? I talk to people who are worried about the economy and politics and what the future might hold. They're worried about what might happen in China or in other parts of the world. Many of them are just worried about something that might happen to them in the future personally. But I want you to think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul, and, and what is he facing? He's facing what is actually the worst thing that could ever happen to you. I mean, think about it. If the economy falters, if things in China go bad, really the worst thing that can happen to you is that you would die. That, that's about as bad as it gets. And guess what? I've got some news for you. That is going to happen. That is going to happen to you unless Jesus comes back, which he could, if, but if he doesn't, you are going to die. The worst thing that could ever happen is definitely going to happen to you. And here's the hope that we have in Jesus. Because of what he did for us, when you die, it will simply be like moving out of a tent 
and moving into the great, big, beautiful home that God has been preparing for you. That is the hope of heaven. And just think about how that takes the teeth out of the fear of death, doesn't it? Think about how it changes the way you live and approach your life and the decisions you make and the way you experience trials in this life here and now. That brings us to the second part of our sentence. The hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials. Look at what it says in verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I was, in, I was in Europe recently, and uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was there uh, leading a conference which was for Ukrainian church leaders and aid workers, people who've been very involved in Ukraine since the conflict there began. And uh, one of the people who I spent a lot of time with at this conference was a pastor friend of mine. He's a Ukrainian pastor, and uh, he's currently living as a refugee in Germany. When the war started, uh, his neighborhood was shelled. And so he packed up his family and his cat and his dog, and they drove, and they're, they're currently living as refugees in Germany. So when they arrived in Germany, they were given a place to stay at an indoor sports arena. So there's this indoor sports arena, and about 1,000 people are living on the floor of this indoor sports arena in tents. And so he lived there with his family for about three months with his wife, his four kids, his dog, and his cat in a tent. And he told me that he learned very much what it means here when Paul says, in this tent we groan. And this is a guy who, who has a master's degree and used to live in a nice suburban neighborhood like many of us do. And he says now he's living in this tent on the floor of an arena with thousands of people. And he says, I experienced that feeling literally. And I experienced it very personally. See, in this life, there are a lot of things that cause us to groan. We groan as we see the injustice in the world. We groan as we experience pain and suffering in our lives and as we see it in the lives of those around us who we love. We groan not only because we're burdened by the hardships of this life, but because we earnestly long to be in the place where everything will be the way that we know deep down inside that it ought to be, the way it should be, that place where everything will be right. You see, we're the place where we can be united with those who have gone before us in the faith and who have preceded us in death. Look at what it says in verse 3. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What awaits us, Paul says, in this heavenly dwelling, what awaits us is new bodies. See, when Paul says that we won't be naked, but rather we will be clothed, what he's saying is that when we go to heaven, we will not be bodiless spirits just kind of floating around in the ether like apparitions or ghosts. No, in heaven, we will receive new bodies. Now, the reason this is a particularly relevant point to the Corinthian Christians was because they lived in Greece. And the Greek philosophers of that time taught that the highest level of existence was to be a bodiless spirit. In fact, they taught that the physical body is a prison for your soul. And when you die, you, you finally shed your body and your soul can be free, which is why if you read in history books, you'll notice that a lot of the Greek philosophers committed suicide. Now, one of the reasons they committed suicide is because they believed that by doing so, they were liberating their soul from the prison of their body. 
But I want you to see how different Christianity is and the message of Christianity is. What Paul is telling us here is, no, when you go to heaven, you will not be a naked spirit. And the pinnacle of existence is not to be liberated from physicalness, right? No, instead, when what it means to go to heaven is to be clothed with a new and better body. Do you remember when Jesus resurrected? And for 40 days, he went around and he met with people and they saw him and they touched him and he ate food. And yet his body was, in some ways, although it was physical, in other ways it had, it had attributes and characteristics that his body did not have prior to the resurrection. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that Jesus was what he calls the first fruits. He was model 0000001 of all the models that are going to come out, right? The first fruits of those resurrected from the dead. In other words, as he was, so we will be. As he was in the resurrection, so we will be in the resurrection of our bodies. Our heavenly bodies will be immortal, and yet they will be physical. And that's important because here's what it means. It means that the physicalness of our world is not what is wrong with it. Our physical bodies are not inherently bad. Physical pleasure is not bad. That's what this means. In creation, God looked at everything he made and he declared that it was good. And God affirmed the essential goodness of our physical bodies by becoming a man and adding humanity to his deity in the person of Jesus. If there was something inherently wrong with our bodies, then Jesus could never have taken on human flesh. You see, ultimately, the hope of the gospel, the hope of redemption, is that God is going to redeem all of creation from the bondage of sin and make all things new. But the point is this. In heaven, you aren't just going to be floating around, bored out of your mind for eternity, right? I've talked to people. They're like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little worried about going to heaven because I need to have fun now because when I get there, it's just going to be all boring all the time. Let me tell you this. You will have a physical body in heaven, and it will be good. You will not be unclothed. Rather, you will be further clothed. In other words, that's Paul's way of saying it's not going to be a removal of your body. It's going to be an upgrade. It'd be like when you drive your beat up old clunker onto the car lot and it's leaking oil and it's covered in dents and it barely runs. And in return, they they hand you the keys to a brand new, like, super deluxe model. That's what's going to happen when you get to heaven. I don't know about you. I'm going to trade in this one for one that has better hair, for example, right? You're going to trade in the one that you have for for one that's back doesn't hurt and doesn't have cancer, doesn't have diabetes. That's what we have to look forward to. Look at what it says there at the end of of verse 4. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. When I was in high school in the uh, science department, they had this big glass enclosure that had a python in it. And we'd all gather around every afternoon to watch them feed the python. They'd feed it rats and mice, and it was awesome. And you know what they do? They, like, unhinge their jaw, and they just, like, absorb that mouse, right? They just swallow it whole, and the mouse just, like, disappears into the snake. And, And that's the picture Paul's giving us here, isn't it? He's saying, our mortal bodies will be swallowed up 
by life, something so much more powerful, something so much greater, our current lives and bodies will be absorbed into something infinitely greater. You're going to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and given a heavenly body, which is perfectly suited for eternal life in God's presence. And look at what it says in verse 5. He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Check out what Paul's saying here. He's saying that God has prepared you for this destiny. God has prepared you for this eternal destiny. What Jesus has done for you has made the way for you to be in heaven. Jesus' sinless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection and ascension, you are not the one who makes it possible for you to go to heaven. Rather, it is God who has done everything for you so that you can go to heaven. And that's really good news because you know what it means? The fact that God did it, the fact that God saves you means that you can't mess it up. He's done it. He's prepared you for it. And he has given you his spirit as a guarantee. You know that word guarantee? It's kind of like what we talk about when we talk about putting down a deposit or a prepayment on something. It's God's guarantee to us that he will finish the work that he has begun in us. And his guarantee of that, his down payment, his deposit, is that he has given us his spirit within us to indwell us, to lead us, to work in us, to will and to do his good pleasure by strengthening us and empowering us to be used by him in the world until our time here on earth is over. Now, maybe you wonder, this is a question I often get, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit within me? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit within me? Great question. There's a great answer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul the Apostle says this. He says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit of God. No one can say that. So if you are a person who trusts in Jesus as your Savior and desires to follow him as your Lord, then you can be confident that you have the Holy Spirit within you and that you belong to God, and he will see to completion what he has begun in you. So look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Knowing these things about what awaits us as followers of Jesus and our eternal destiny. It fills our hearts with courage. The hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials. It puts steel in your spine because it means that there is nothing, nothing in life nor in death that you need to fear. Because what's the worst that could happen to you? You're miserable? Listen, it will only be for a moment. You die, that there's a home waiting for you in the heavens where you'll be welcomed and given an upgraded body and every tear will be wiped away. Right now in the body, we are away from the Lord. And so, he says in verse 7, we must walk by faith, not by sight. Right now, we trust in God's word that what he says is true. And we can do that confidently because Throughout the Bible, we can see how God has always kept his promises to his people up until this point. So right now, we walk by faith in his word, and we do so knowing that the day is coming when there will be no more need for faith, because our faith will be sight. We will see God face to face and be with him forever. And that's why it says in verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is what gives us courage in the face of the trials we face in our lives here and now. One day, we will leave this broken world 
and these broken bodies, and we will finally be at home with the Lord. And that homesickness that you feel in your soul will be satisfied in his presence. Your journey, your seeking will be over, and your joy will be complete. Friends, listen, whatever trials you are facing in your life, whatever fears you have about the future, do you know what the hope of heaven means for you? It means that you can rest knowing that everything is going to be okay. I have a friend I was talking to recently. He's been through some, some really hard things, and he's struggling with a lot of anxiety about things going on in the world and things in his life personally. And at one point during our conversation, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I just want to know that everything is going to be okay. And I was able to look him in the eye and with all sincerity tell him, my friend, that is exactly what the hope of the gospel means for you and me. The message of the gospel is that if you are in Christ through faith and through trust in him, it is going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. It really is. If the gospel means nothing else, it certainly means this, that if your faith is in Jesus and your hope is in him, then no matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what you are facing today, it is going to be okay. It may not work out the way you hoped or expected, but it is certainly going to be okay in Jesus. Now, this brings up the final question that someone might ask in response to all this. And by the way, I think it's a good question. The question is this. Doesn't focusing on going to heaven cause people to be indifferent or aloof or even callous about the problems and issues going on in this world right now? You know, there's a saying that goes like this. You can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. So the question is, does the hope of heaven actually encourage us to stop caring and stop engaging in the things of this world because we, we've moved on and we've kind of already punched our ticket to heaven and, and we've kind of checked out mentally? And the answer, Paul tells us in verses 9 through 11, is no. Actually, if you really understand the hope of heaven, it will have the exact opposite effect. Rather than making you aloof and disengaged, it will cause you to engage when you really understand. You see, the hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials, and finally, it gives us direction in how to spend the days of our lives. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, rather than causing us to check out on this life, the hope of heaven actually gives us a sense of urgency when it comes to how we live our lives in the short time that we have left here on earth. And look at what Paul says in the very next verse, just the beginning of it, in verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, we're going to talk about this more in our study next week. But I want you to think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying this. Look, if life is short and heaven is real, you know what that means? You know what it does? It gives us a sense of urgency. And it, and it, it fills our lives with a sense of purpose and importance. You see, what it means is we are surrounded by, you are surrounded by people as you go about your days who do not have much time left to live. And eternity is at stake. Eternity is on the line. 
So rather than encouraging us to be passive, you realize the hope of heaven motivates us to be actively engaging and reaching out with the love of God and the hope of the gospel. Furthermore, there are good works, the Bible says, that God has prepared for us that we would walk in them. And what that means is that as long as there is breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, God has a purpose and a calling for your life. So in the time that we have left here on earth, we make it our goal to please him. We keep in mind that one day we will stand before him to give an account of all of our actions. Now I want you to look at verse 10 because verse 10 is one that gives a lot of people a sense of confusion, perhaps even consternation. And here's why. Because they look at this verse and they say, well, wait a second. Doesn't this verse contradict other things that the Bible says about how Jesus took the judgment for our sins upon himself so that we wouldn't have to stand before God to be judged for our sins on the day of judgment? Again, that's a really good question. And the answer is this. The judgment seat being talked about here in 2 Corinthians is different than the judgment seat that is talked about in other places in the Bible. See, in other places in the Bible, for example, in the book of Revelation chapter 20, we read about the judgment of those who have died apart from faith in Jesus who will be judged for their sins. So in Revelation chapter 20, we read about something that's kind of known as the great white throne judgment. Now this is when the condemned will stand before God's great white throne and the book of life will be opened and read and they will be judged according to their sins because they've died apart from faith in Jesus and they will receive their sentence. Now that's different than, than the judgment we read about here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. This judgment is not for the condemned. This judgment is for the redeemed. This judgment isn't about sentencing. It's about rewarding for good works. You see, if you commit a crime and you're brought before a judge, that judge will convict you and sentence you. But you know, there are other things that judges do. We have judges who judge sporting events. We have judges in the Olympic Games. And the job of those judges is to make sure that people are playing according to the rules. And the, the job of those judges is to award or reward those who play the game with excellence or who do well. And the word for judgment that's used here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 is the Greek word bema, which is the word used for judges on a platform at a sporting event. You see, the point of what Paul is saying here is not you better do well because God will judge you. Rather, instead, what he's saying is God is going to reward you for the things that you do in his name to serve and bless others. He's going to reward you for the ways that you represent his heart. But he's also going to take a look at what motivated those actions. Were they motivated by selfish reasons? Did you do good things but for a bad reason? Or did you do those things from a pure heart? All of these things will be examined by God, and he will reward you. You see, don't check out on this life and hold your breath and wait to go to heaven. Rather, engage, be active, live out the purpose that God has placed on your life to love and serve others just as he has loved and served you, knowing that God will leave no good deed unrewarded. So not only does the hope of heaven put steel in your spine, it puts wind in your sails. It fills your life with purpose and urgency and a sense of importance. Because think about this. Do you realize that there are some things that you can only do in this life? 
that you will not be able to do in heaven. For example, you will not be able to share the good news of the gospel, the message of salvation with someone once you're in heaven. You will not be able to help the hurting, help the needy, be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting world. Those are things that you can only do here and now. Those are opportunities you will not have in the life to come. So right now, you can make an impact with your life that will last for eternity. That's important. To those who say that you can be too heavenly minded so that you're of no earthly good, Paul the Apostle would retort and say, listen, I would say instead, the only way to truly be of any earthly good is to first of all be heavenly minded. The hope of heaven gives us direction in how to spend the days of our lives. It drives us to use the days of our lives in ways that please God, doing what he's called us to do for his glory and for the good of others. So ask yourself this week, what can I do with the time I've got left to serve others in a way that pleases God and make a difference that will last for eternity? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God so loved you that he came to this broken world. He took on a human body like ours in order to redeem us so that rather than perishing in our sins, we might have eternal life. The hope we're talking about today, it belongs to all those who have put their trust and hope in Jesus. And that can be you. You can have this hope and it will change your life and you can have it today if you will simply take his hand and walk with him, trusting in what he's done to save you and following him as your Lord. And as you do that, you will have the hope of heaven. And the hope of heaven gives us courage in the face of trials and direction in how to spend the days of our lives. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.